Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown, and with me, as per usual, is, is Matthew Ma- Stockton. Matthew Stockton. <laughs> Hello, Matthew. I want to do a shout out to Jerry McElveen, who, who's who doesn't listen to podcasts. Oh well, there you go. <laughs> and I hope Jerry enjoys his shout out that he won't ever hear. <laughs> who's Jerry McElveen? Oh, I told his wife I'd uh, shout him out because he doesn't listen to podcasts to see if he can get into one. Oh, okay, I gotcha. <laughs> Well, I hope you're listening, Jerry. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor its parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. On September 28, 2016, a police dog discovered the nude and decomposing body of a young woman on the grounds of Gabriola House, a famous and at the time abandoned mansion on Davie Street in Vancouver's West End. The body was that of Natsumi Kogawa, 30, a Japanese woman who'd been in Canada on a visa to study English since May of that year. Natsumi's friends and family had not heard from her since September 8th, and she'd been officially listed as a missing person four days after that. On the same day of the discovery of Ms. Kagawa's body, police arrested William Victor Schneider, a man from Vernon, B.C. Schneider's own brother, Warren, had turned him into the cops after William had told him where Natsumi's body could be found. He also recalled to police about overhearing a phone conversation during which he said he thought William had admitted to having killed the Japanese student. The legal proceedings that followed dragged on into the fall of 2022. This is Dark Poutine episode 255, The Murder of Natsumi Kogawa. I remember this case well, as it's local to us. There were lots of coverage in the local news, even as early as mid-September, shortly after Ms. Kogawa disappeared. And the fact that she was an international student in the country on a visa made the case of her disappearance compelling to the media and public. 
when Natsumi was found, where she was discovered, and when the state of her body at the time became apparent, the media coverage exploded. And the case received widespread media coverage in both Canada and Japan. I can imagine it would. Yeah. I was brand new to BC at the time. Okay. I, I moved here in 2015. Mm -hmm. Um, Actually, this month is eight years. Wow. And... Yeah, I don't, I don't watch too much news. Yeah. So I didn't hear about it, but I did walk past the building and, and saw candles and, and her photo. And that, <laughs> that's how I found out about it. Wow. Natsumi was pretty and tiny, only four feet, 11 inches tall. According to her friends and family, she was not one to be out of contact for long periods and would always promptly respond to messages online, the chat program she used predominantly. The last time anyone heard from Natsumi was around 11.30 a.m. on September 8, 2016. Natsumi and her friend Derek Manhas had planned to head downtown from Hold'em Skytrain Station, just a two-minute walk from Natsumi's homestay. They were headed to Miku, a high-end Japanese restaurant in Vancouver, to obtain a job application for Natsumi. Derek had an insider at the restaurant, a manager there and he was more than willing to vouch for hard-working Natsumi as a possible employee at the restaurant. Miku. Yeah. That's the sister uh, restaurant with Manami. You oh. know, you know my favorite restaurant. Yes. Yep. Derek. It was his cousin that works there. Okay. If he still works there, I would like to be friends with Derek so I can get a table more easily. <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic restaurant. Oh, I bet really? You she, I bet you she would have loved working there because it's like truly like Japanese. Like real Japanese yeah. cuisine. Yeah. yeah. Vancouver's kind of known for our Japanese culture and it's that kind of thing. Best sushi outside of Tokyo that I've ever had. Very little has been shared publicly about Natsumi Kagawa, and so we'll try to paint a picture of who she was using news reports in which her friends and family recalled her life. There was also a Facebook page dedicated to her disappearance that was really helpful. Born in Aomori City in 1986, Natsumi was the eldest daughter of six children and had an older brother. Wanting to educate their children in a natural environment, when the kids were young, the family moved from the city to a village in the mountains of Hakoda. Children went to a small school in the mountains, but after graduating from junior high school, they left the mountain to go to high school in Hirosaki. In Hakoda Mountain Village, the whole village is a family is the whole village is family centered around the school. Emiko, Natsumi's mother, was happy that she was able to raise her children in such a friendly village in such rich natural surroundings. It sounds like a really quaint place. It really, really does. I'd love to see, I've only seen Tokyo. Mm -hmm. I'd love to tour smaller villages in Japan. I like the photos and video that I've seen of rural Japan. It looks like a really pleasant, lush place. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hey, I, have you read that Japan monster book I got you for Christmas? Not yet. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I do want to read it. It's it's on my list, and it's going to be helpful for my next book, and you'll see when you read mm. my next book. Aomori Prefecture, where Natsumi grew up, is situated at the northernmost tip of Japan's main island of Honshu. The Aomori region is a popular tourist destination year-round. In spring, people come from all over Japan to participate in the annual Sakura or Cherry Blossom Festival. One of the popular Sakura viewing destinations is Hirosaki Castle. Completed in 1611, the castle housed several generations of the Sugaru clan. The large 49.2 hectare grounds include three concentric moats and earthen fortifications that surround the remains of the inner castle area, five castle gates, three corner keeps, and a castle tower. 
After the original five-story tower was struck by lightning and burned down, the current three-storied Tenshukaku Tower was built to replace it. With over 5,000 cherry trees in the park around the castle, the Cherry Blossom Festival is a sight to behold. According to the site wikivoyage.org, quote, the locals and tourists find it an enjoyable festival of laughing, singing, dancing, and drinking. In early August, the Aomori Nebuta again attracts droves of tourists to the region. It's a summer festival featuring a large lantern floats of up to 9 meters wide and 5 meters tall that depict gods, historical or mythical figures from both Japanese and Chinese culture, kabuki actors, and characters from the popular NHK Tega drama historical TV series. The floats are pulled by human power along a 3-kilometer route packed with enthusiastic crowds encouraged to participate in the dancing. According to japan-guide.com, the only requirement is that participants wear the traditional Hanato dancing costume, which can be bought at grocery stores and shops around the prefecture for about 7,000 yen, that's about 72 Canadian dollars, or rented from rental shops around town for about 4,000 yen, which is 41 Canadian dollars. There are hot springs called onsens available nearby, and in the winter, the hills and mountains of the region are also a popular destination for snowboarders and skiers. Mitsumi had dreamed of moving to Canada to study English and had her sights set on Vancouver as a destination. Vancouver is the closest metropolitan city in Canada to Japan and as a result is often the first stop for visitors from the country. And there are many English as a second language schools here that cater to students from Japan and other countries. There's actually one that used to be in my building. Oh, cool. Yeah. Sometimes I look over the water mm -hmm. from my place and think, if I just kept going straight, I'd like hit Japan. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, there's a lot of Japanese influence in, in Vancouver. Very much. You know, yeah. People talk about the Hong, Hong Kong uh, influence, but there's a lot of Japanese, and I, I like it. It sort of gives the place a little bit more interest and vibrance. Vancouver is kind of a spicy place. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I like it that way. As well as the ESL schools, there are many Japanese Canadians in the region and organizations like Tonari Gumi, the Japanese Community Volunteer Society, which, according to its website, over the last 50 years, quote, has been building relationships and connections with the Japanese Canadian community throughout Metro Vancouver. From its early days as a group of Japanese community volunteers, Tanari Gumi has always been strongly focused on being a supportive community organization. It continues to serve the needs of its members and the wider community, helping them navigate life in Vancouver with greater independence. In addition, Tanarigumi also helps them achieve health, well-being, and happiness. Tanarigumi's goal is caring for, inspiring, and enhancing the welfare and well-being of Japanese Canadians who live in the metro Vancouver area, end quote. With community supports like Tanarigumi and our large local Japanese-Canadian population, many of whom still speak the language, Vancouver is an easier move than to other places where the landing might be a little more culturally shocking. With all that in mind, Natsumi worked hard and saved her money for years before making her way to the Lower Mainland in May of 2016 and settling in Burnaby. The move from the village in Aomori Prefecture was made a bit easier as Natsumi and her mom Emiko found Natsumi's lodging with a 77-year-old Japanese-Canadian woman in Burnaby. Emiko was concerned at first that the older woman's house was not the right place for Natsumi, given the commute to Vancouver as well. But it was only a two-minute walk to the SkyTrain which heads right downtown and was close to the school Natsumi would attend. 
Natsumi and the woman also had lots in common, such as a love of reading, and at their first meeting, a friendship was established between the two. Natsumi's landlady was happy with the friendly, engaging conversation she'd had with Natsumi, and it was decided there that she'd move in. Emiko returned to Japan as her daughter Natsumi began her adventure in Canada. Natsumi stayed in regular touch with her family and friends back in Japan via phone and internet calls, as well as instant messages online and email. Natsumi quickly made friends with many of her classmates, and it was through mutual friends in May, soon after her arrival, that she met a man named Jay Vergara, whom she'd been dating at the time of her disappearance. All was going well for Natsumi, and she was enjoying her time in Vancouver with her new pals and learning to speak English. Natsumi was making the best of her time here. She was always busy. On a Facebook page titled, Find Natsumi Kagawa, created by her friends soon after her disappearance, Admins published a timeline of Natsumi's movements and interactions in the 24 hours leading up to her vanishing. On September 7, 2016, between 1 and 2 p.m., Natsumi attended a calligraphy lesson in Vancouver. She went to an info session in Vancouver between 4.30 and 5.30, and from 5.50 p.m., she spent the next few hours studying in the Vancouver Public Library. She arrived back in Burnaby at 7.30 that evening and exchanged instant messages with friends and family until around midnight, one of whom was her mom. At 11.21 a.m. on Thursday, September 8th, Natsumi's last messages were to her friend Derek Manhas as they planned to go for a walk around the seawall in Vancouver and then to Miku so Natsumi could apply for that job. Derek had something come up and messaged Natsumi at about 4.30 p.m. He wanted to adjust their meeting time from 5.30 to 6.30. As Line will notify a user when the recipient has read a message, Derek noted that his messages went unread. When Derek arrived at 6.30 p.m., the message he'd sent was still showing as unread. Natsumi was not at home, so Derek walked the route between Natsumi's homestay and Hold'em Skytrain Station, thinking they'd somehow missed each other. There was no sign of Natsumi. Derek tried other means to get in touch with his missing friend, calling, emailing, and texting, but there was never a response. Derek later testified, quote, There were alarm bells going off at this point. It didn't feel right. It felt weird. None of Natsumi's friends heard from her all weekend. According to the Star newspaper, Derek Manhas called Burnaby RCMP on Monday, September 12, 2016, to report the 30-year-old student missing. Can you imagine you go to meet a friend and eventually slowly over time it dawns on you that something's really wrong yeah that sinking feeling in your stomach that you must have right yeah and it also shows how actually if he realized that quickly that something wasn't right um it shows how reliable a person she was yeah and how out of character this was yeah 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 i have friends that if they suddenly went missing for 48 hours <laughs> You'd be like, okay, yeah. Something's not right. <laughs> no, they'll come back eventually. They always do. But it sounds like she was uh, quite a on-time responsible type. On September 13, 2016, Vancouver Police Department issued a news release. It reads, The VPD Missing Persons Unit is asking for the public's help in locating a missing Japanese student. 30-year-old Natsumi Kagawa was last seen in downtown Vancouver on Wednesday, September 7th, and was last in contact with friends on September 8th. Miss Kagawa is an experienced traveler studying English in Vancouver. Family and friends have become concerned after having no contact with her for the past five days. Natsumi is Asian, 4 foot 11 inches tall, and a slim build, long hair and brown eyes. She may be also be carrying a backpack. 
anyone who knows the whereabouts of Natsumi Kagawa is asked to call the police. Also, according to the Star newspaper, quote, Natsumi's boyfriend at the time, Jay Vergara, described her as a dedicated student working hard to improve her English. She often stayed at his place in East Vancouver, and the last time he saw her was on the morning of Wednesday, September 7, 2016, when he dropped her off at the SkyTrain station. It was Jay Vergara who headed up the efforts to find Natsumi. He used the Facebook page, Find Natsumi Kagawa, to provide updates to friends, family, and anyone else interested in finding Natsumi. The SL students' friends rallied together, creating missing persons flyers, holding searches along Natsumi's planned transit routes, and around Burnaby and Vancouver. Jay also used his Twitter account, at SushiStand, as another method to spread to help spread information. In one post on the Facebook page on September 16th, Jay Vergara wrote, I want to thank Yellow Pages for Business Canada for graciously supporting our efforts to help find Natsumi. They have given me as much time as I need to continue my efforts, sent out communications to bring volunteers, and also helped us print thousands of flyers. Thank you so much. Natsumi will be found. News of Natsumi's disappearance spread all over Canada and made the news cycle back in Japan. In one Facebook post, Jay Vergara pleaded with the Prime Minister to help find Natsumi. He wrote, Justin Trudeau, our Canadian Prime Minister, please help us. We're desperate. Help us find Natsumi Kogawa. All of Japan and all of Metro Vancouver are looking for her. Please give the RCMP any support they need. Hashtag find Natsumi. He did a lot to try to help find her. Yeah, I, he I, really did. I read some of this news and mm -hmm. some of the interviews and... Um, the way he described her, right? You Did you like walk away when you saw some of these interviews? Like, I thought, wow, I bet I could have really gotten along with her. Like she seems like sure. just a cool person yep. that I, that I would have liked. Yep. And this is the feeling I got about Natsumi Kagawa, yeah. actually, as I was researching this. And we'll get into some interesting sort of takes on things later on. Okay. But yeah. As the volunteer searches seemed to be fruitless, they considered moving the search out into Surrey. After receiving information that Natsumi had been seen in Vancouver on the afternoon of her disappearance, they decided to move downtown to Waterfront Station. On September 27, 2016, Vancouver police released a CCTV video of Natsumi and an as-yet-unidentified man walking in a shopping area in downtown Vancouver at 1.30 p.m. on the day of her disappearance, a full two hours after her last communication with Derek Manhas. The man and Natsumi can be clearly seen walking side by side, engaged in what appears to be a friendly conversation. The Vancouver Sun reported that Natsumi had just bought a Mickey of vodka at a liquor store and some chips and crackers at the Dollarama store, not far from Miku. The fact that Natsumi had bought vodka with her credit card is odd as her friends knew her as clean living. She didn't drink, use drugs, or smoke. Natsumi was wearing a loose, beige pullover blouse, black and white checked pants, and flip-flops. The man next to her was described this way. Caucasian male, approximately 30, medium height, slim build, light-colored hair, wearing a dark jacket, blue jeans, running shoes, and a dark baseball cap, holding a, a black gym bag with red handles, and wearing a dark-colored duffel-style backpack. The next day, Warren Schneider went to the police in Vernon. He identified the man in the video as his brother, William Willie Vic Victor Schneider, 48, Willie had admitted to Warren that he'd, quote, done something bad and had told Warren where he'd put Natsumi's body, in the bushes on the property of Gabriola Mansion in Vancouver. Sure enough, thanks to the help of a canine unit, 
After a brief search of the property, police found Natsumi's body badly decomposed, having been stuffed inside a suitcase. Cops arrested Willie Schneider and Vernon just five hours after the discovery. More after a quick break. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. The news site Castanet, based in the British Columbia interior, covered Natsumi Kagawa's murder and subsequent legal proceedings in depth as the perpetrator, William Willie Victor Schneider, was from Vernon, within that region. His father, Warren, was still residing in the same home in which Willie, his brother Warren Jr., and their sister had grown up. Their mother had passed away in 2000. Willie, John Manchester from Castanet says, was well known as a longtime troublemaker and bully. As with many career criminals, his trouble started early in life. He dropped out of Clarence Fulton Secondary in the ninth grade. Journalist John Manchester wrote about Willie Schneider's life in a Castanet article. He said, quote, Toronto's The Star newspaper reported in 2018 that as a teen, he once set a live cat on fire and took bets with his friends on which direction it would run. And that information was from a psychological assessment in 2000. And there is everything you need to know about the guy right there. What, yeah, what a piece of garbage. Yeah, I can't deal with pet pe people who hurt animals. Hurt animals, yeah. Like any animal, really. I mean, I understand um, meat, you know, hunting. You know, if you're like hunting, fishing, using it, but torturing animals, yeah, it's just ridiculous. At the time of his arrest as a suspect in Natsumi Kagawa's murder, Willie had already amassed 48 criminal convictions, one for every year of his life. Among those, he'd been convicted of resisting arrest, assaulting a police officer, as well as other assaults, theft, and an armed robbery in 1998, which led to a four-year stint behind bars in Agassiz. After ending up in Vancouver as a young man, Schneider became entangled with another Japanese woman whom he married. The woman returned to Japan after becoming pregnant with Schneider's child, a son. At the time of Schneider's arrest, she was still living in Japan and had been for years. They were still married, although she no longer wanted to be. Schneider had not agreed to a divorce. Willie wanted her back. He'd traveled to Japan in July of 2016 to try and convince his wife to come back to Vancouver with his son but she didn't want to return. Willie's brother Warren later said that Willie seemed, quote, sad and lost after returning from Japan, having failed to convince his wife to come back to Canada. Smart woman. And yeah. I'm wondering what the history was there. Yeah. They, you know, leaving the country when you're pregnant to, like, get away from somebody. Yeah. Right? It's very interesting. Yeah. Uh, perhaps wanted the child born in Japan for some reason. Or, could, or could perhaps have wanted to get away from him. Interesting, yeah. Yeah. John Manchester's Castanet article also indicates that Schneider had previous connections to the property on which Natsumi Kagawa's body was found. According to the Vancouver Heritage site finder, Gabriola House has an interesting history. The mansion at 1523 Davy Street was designed by architect Samuel McClure, 
and constructed in 1900 to 1901. Gabriola Mansion was for years the most impressive home in the West End. It was commissioned by Benjamin Tingley Rogers, one of Vancouver's most prominent industrialists and the founder of the BC Sugar Refinery, who later built an even larger home, Shannon Estate, at 7255 Granville. It features sandstone quarried on Gabriola Island on the Port Cochere in Richardsonian Romanesque manner, with friezes carved in the Italian grotesque style. James Bloomfield designed the grand staircase with a pre-Raphaelite stained glass window and a fully excavated concrete basement was the first to be used in a Vancouver residence. Rogers died in 1918, and his widow moved to the 10-acre Shannon estate. Gabriola Mansion was subdivided into Angus Apartments in 1924 and housed commercial restaurants. In the 1970s, Highs and the Macaroni Grill until 2008. Now, I ate at the Macaroni Grill on a couple of occasions, and it's quite the building inside. I'm not sure what it looks like now, uh, but it was sad to see it fall into disrepair. It remained vacant until 2015, and the mansion has now been converted into market rental units and rezoned for new townhouses on the south corner of the lot. Yeah, I walked past it recently, mm-hmm. and they're, they're almost finished. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I haven't been down there for a while. I have no reason I'm kind to go of downtown. Glad that, I'm really. glad the building wasn't ripped down. Yeah, me too. I mean, we say mansion. It's a big house, right? It, it's it's quite a house. It's quite a house. Yeah. Um, and it used to be the entire city block when it was first built. Yeah. Um, but, and it's this weird thing because it's, it's this big old house on a plot of land. Yep. In the middle of all these high rises. Yeah, it's very odd. Yeah. Yeah, there are some odd sort of anomalies like that in Vancouver, yeah. and that's one of them. At the time Natsumi's body was found, the property was uh, effectively abandoned. The area was a bit overgrown and neglected, but passable, according to court documents. Yeah, it was, you know, some of the bushes were a little bit weedy, but somebody was still cutting the lawn and, and, and keeping it up. But, you know, it was the either the boarded up front door and things yeah. like that. Yeah. According to John Manchester of Castanet, Schneider was often seen hanging around the abandoned Gabriola Mansion on Davy Street. He was seen trying to lure people into the abandoned home for $5 tours. Manchester continued, stating that during this period, Schneider was either sleeping in a tent on the mansion grounds or staying at the Catholic Hostel on Camby Street. Court documents revealed that Natsumi Kagawa's autopsy found no anatomic evidence of major injuries. A piece of cloth was, quote, folded and stuffed within the anus, and the cloth was soiled, with no obvious evidence of fresh blood. There were, quote, tree branches and leaves that were scattered on the body, predominantly on the right side. Toxicology tests indicated that Natsumi had two medications in her body, Zopiclone, typically used as a sleeping medication, and Lorazepam, anti-anxiety medication with a sedative effect, that's Valium. When taken together, these medications will, quote, promote the effect of sleepiness or decreased motor coordination, possibly dizziness, and affect a person's judgment, end quote. Natsumi did not have a prescription for either medication. However, police learned that William Schneider did have a prescription for lorazepam, last filled on September 6, 2016, two days before Natsumi disappeared, and is presumed to have been killed. It is not clear, though, 
Due to the advanced level of decomposition, whether Natsumi was under the influence of those drugs at the time of her death, whether she'd been drugged against her will, we may never know. Again from court documents, quote, A pathologist was not able to determine the cause of death because of the lack of specific anatomic or visible injury and the lack of specific toxicological findings that can explain death. She did not rule out overdose as a possible cause of death. She also testified that the absence of anatomic or visible injury was not inconsistent with the cause of death being asphyxia from suffocation. She defined asphyxia as the inability to utilize oxygen or to use oxygen, and said asphyxia cases oftentimes are not associated with specific visible findings at autopsy. The pathologist said that not a large amount of force is necessary to just block the nose and mouth. More force is required to cause bruising. There was no sign of bruising on Ms. Kagawa's nose. Her frenulum, the tissue that connects the top lip to the middle of one's gums, was intact. There were no signs of petechial hemorrhaging in her mouth. Bruising, tearing of the frenulum, and petechial hemorrhaging are injuries that can occur when pressure is applied to the nose and mouth depending on the degree of force used. After the public learned of Natsumi's death and where she'd been found, a makeshift memorial began to grow outside Gabriella Mansion. People left flowers and gifts of condolence near the gates of the property on the corner of Davy and Nicholas Streets. A lot of people cared. Yeah. Uh, because that's how I found out about this. Mm -hmm. I was walking by, saw some candles lit, mm -hmm. some flowers. So I walked up to the front steps of the, of, of the mansion and read some of them. These stories that happen locally, I'm, I mean, I'm sure everybody who lives in a place where something like this has happened recalls it really well mm. because it's something anomalous to see this uh, strange makeshift memorial out front of a place and you're like, what's going on? Because you're drawn to it. Yeah. And I guess that's the purpose of it. Yeah. They want people to stop and stop and, and be aware of what happened. Willie Schneider had returned to Vernon after Natsumi went missing, presumably running from what he'd done. He stopped in at Warren's hometown in Rutland, B.C. on September 20, 2016. The brothers met in a local park. Willie seemed distraught. According to court documents, quote, he gathered his items and left saying that he'd done something bad and he walked off, end quote. After that, Willie went to Vernon to stay at Warren Sr.'s place. The next time Warren Jr. and Willie saw each other was in Kelowna on September 23rd for their grandmother's birthday party. On September 27th, Warren got a phone call from his daughter. She was shocked to see her Uncle Willie on an internet news site on the CCTV video of him walking beside the missing Japanese student, Natsumi Kagawa. Warren called for his brother at their dad's place and told Willie there was a picture of him on the news. Without a word after being told of the CCTV video, Willie hung up the phone. Warren then drove from Rutland to Vernon that evening, arriving at around 10.30 p.m. Court documents revealed that, quote, Warren grabbed his brother, and they walked to the beer store. On the way back, Willie said, it's true. Willie looked, quote, very sad, remorsefully sad, and, quote, glad to get it off his chest, per se, end quote. Willie shared some details with Warren, saying that he had three dates with Miss Kagawa. The third date was the last one. There was medication taken by both of them, he said. Willie said that Miss Kagawa provided the medication. They had spoken about having sex in a tent in Stanley Park. Warren also learned that Ms. Kagawa had been late for each of the three dates, she had another engagement or appointment on the day in question, 
and in response to the suggestion that they have sex in Stanley Park, Willie told Miss Kagawa of another spot. Warren told Willie that he did not want to hear anything more and that they would talk about it in the morning. Warren spent the night. The next day, according to Warren, Willie was despondent. Willie said he'd decided to die by suicide via a heroin overdose. He wanted Warren to accompany him to a local park where he'd do the deed. Willie didn't want to be alone. The pair went to a beer store, and then Willie bought $50 worth of heroin from a local dealer. As they sat in the park drinking beer, Willie prepped his needle loaded with what he thought would be a fatal dose of heroin. Right before he injected the drug, Willie told Warren that Natsumi Kagawa's body was in a suitcase at a fenced-off construction site, Gabriola Mansion, on the corner of Davy and Nicholas Streets in Vancouver. He said that after he died, Warren should let the police know where she was. Willie injected the heroin and waited to drift off, but it didn't happen. The drugs barely had any effect on him. He'd been ripped off. I find this really strange. What's, what's strange? Even if my brother admitted to killing somebody, mm -hmm. I wouldn't sit there and watch him commit to, to complete suicide. Yeah. Or try suicide. Yeah. Right? I'd be angry with him for doing it. I'd turn him in. Yeah. But I wouldn't go and sit and watch him die. Yeah, you never know. Like, I mean, family dynamics are, are strange. Sure. and. You never know what's going on between family members. Yeah. yeah. Court documents revealed that Warren said that after Willie had failed to die from the heroin injection, he asked to use Warren's phone and said he was going to call his wife in Japan. He dialed a number and had a 13-minute conversation with the person who answered. Warren was about 10 feet away from Willie at the time and could only hear one side of the conversation. Warren said he heard Willie ask near the beginning of the conversation. Did you see the news of the missing Japanese woman's student? Then, halfway through, Willie said, I did it, and I killed her. Warren and his sister went to the Vernon police later that day. Natsumi's body was found just where Willie had said it would be, and he was arrested in the same Vernon Park hours later. The VPD's news release read, quote, Vancouver police have located the body of a woman who has been missing for about three weeks. Shortly before 7 p.m. on September 28th, officers made the discovery on the property of Davy Street Mansion near Nicholas Street. The body has been identified as 30-year-old Natsumi Kagawa. After several days without contact with friends or family, Ms. Kagawa was reported missing on September 12, 2016 to the VPD. Investigators determined that Ms. Kagawa was last seen in Burnaby on September 8th and the primary missing persons investigation was turned over to the Burnaby RCMP Serious Crimes Unit. The missing person investigation led police to search the grounds at 1523 Davy Street in Vancouver. Upon discovery of the body at that location, the investigation was turned over to the VPD Major Crime Section, which is now actively investigating Ms. Kagawa's death. A 48-year-old man was taken into custody in relation to the investigation. He was arrested by RCMP in Vernon, B.C. shortly before midnight on the same day Ms. Kagawa's body was located. William Victor Schneider has now been charged with indignity to a human body and remains in custody. The investigation remains active and ongoing. The VPD and the RCMP continue to work closely to gather and analyze evidence in this matter, end quote. Natsumi's friends and family were devastated. On September 30, 2016, after learning of the discovery of Natsumi's body and Willie Schneider's arrest, Jay Vergara wrote on Facebook, quote, 
I'd like to say thank you to everyone who helped us volunteer and gather information. It is a very dark time for me right now, and the words I'm writing right now cannot possibly convey my sadness. My greatest hope right now is that the person who did this to Natsumi will be swiftly and severely brought to justice. Thank you everyone for your kind words and support. I'm sure Natsumi would have been happy to know that many people have cared for her well-being and helped look for her in the past couple of weeks. End quote. Jay later spoke to Global News about his memories of Natsumi, how he was compelled to lead the search for her, also how he felt on hearing Natsumi had been murdered, and later what the family was asking for. Here's some audio of Jay speaking about his friend. I miss how uh, every time she'd come into a room, everybody would brighten up, brighten up, you know? It was her dream. It was uh, one of the, the culmination of her biggest goal to come here to study. She was... Uh, the kindest, most energetic, um, the hardest working person that um, I've ever met. I couldn't just, you know, leave it to anyone else. Felt a lot of anger. I fantasize about going back in time and seeing if I could, there was anything I could do differently. For the family right now, um, their most important treasure is um, memories of Natsumi. Natsumi's family now hoping any final photos or videos will be shared on Facebook. Kristen Robinson, Global News. Wow, you could hear the emotion in his voice as the interview went on, like yeah. he was getting really choked up yeah. about his friend, you know, uh, his girlfriend, essentially. Global also spoke with a woman identified only as Nanako, another friend of Natsumi's. Here's what she had to say. It's very brief. Until now, I can't believe she's already gone. Sorry, I, I can't describe how much I miss her. Yeah. An update posted later on the Facebook page Find Natsumi Kagawa included a message from Natsumi's mother, Emiko. She wanted to thank everyone for their concern when Natsumi went missing and thanked everyone who'd participated in any way in the search for her. Emiko said that she and other members of Natsumi's grieving family had come to Vancouver in October. Before taking Natsumi's remains back to Japan, Emiko found comfort in learning about all the people who'd loved her daughter here in Canada and about Natsumi's final days. She wrote in Japanese, quote, Our family is still in a dream and cannot accept this reality. Natsumi was always the center of the family and always cheered everyone up brightly like the sun. I still sometimes wonder if she'll suddenly show up and try to make the family laugh with her usual jokes. End quote. At trial in 2018, Schneider pleaded guilty to the charge of interfering with human remains or offering an indignity to a dead body, but had pleaded not guilty to Natsumi's murder. Court documents revealed that the Crown's theory was that Willie Schneider and Natsumi Kagawa were on a date on September 8, 2016. He became angry because Natsumi had to leave for another appointment. In the heat of the moment, that's in quotes, Willie killed her by, quote, smothering or asphyxiating her, using his hand and fingers to cover or block her mouth and nose. The Crown said the evidence proved that when he assaulted Kagawa, Willie either intended to kill her or intended to cause bodily harm that he knew was likely to result in her death. In Crown Council's words, when someone cuts off another's ability to breathe, they will undoubtedly die, even a small child knows that. 
So I have some problems with the idea that they were on a date. It's total bullshit. I don't, what do you, what, what, what are your thoughts on this? We've talked about this already. I think she was a nice person mm -hmm. and she was non-judgmental mm -hmm. and she probably knew he was homeless or having a hard time. Struggling. Yep. Struggling. She probably bought him some stuff yep. to be. And it, she didn't drink, so, no. so the, she, the bottle she, was probably... probably for him. She's just yeah. being a kind person. Yeah. And I think what happened is he made some sort of, this is just my theory, made some sort of advance. She rejected him and he killed her. Yeah, that's right? exactly what Because there's what no I way think. there was a date. This was a date. There's no way. It's, it's not her character. Yeah. I mean, the crown had to go with what he told them. Yeah, he, well, he doesn't get to say anything anymore, does he? Not really. However... You know, they they can't. Yeah, they have to go with what they with what they the story. Yeah, so I, I struggle with that idea. Yeah, there's no way. No, and um, I don't want her name muddied. I want to stand up for her. You know, <laughs> this is another dig by him yeah. to her. Yeah, the crown further argued that after the death. Schneider, quote, took steps to cover his tracks so that there wouldn't be a trail of evidence that not only would lead the police to him, but also hamper their ability to gather evidence which would implicate him in the death, end quote. This included concealing Natsumi Kagawa's body in a suitcase, Willie's conversations with his brother, his attempt to die by suicide, his statements to the police, and a letter to his father were said to be consistent with Schneider knowing that he had committed an unlawful act by causing Natsumi Kagawa's death. The defense argued that, as no cause of death could be determined, the Crown had not proved its case and had not proven that any unlawful act, other than the indignity of a human body after Natsumi's death, had occurred. The defense said that putting Natsumi's body in a suitcase and leaving the suitcase in the bushes was not conduct from which the jury could reasonably infer consciousness of guilt for murder. It was equally consistent with Willie Schneider panicking over the fact that Natsumi Kagawa had died for some unknown reason and then made, quote, very poor decisions about how to respond. They said that even though Willie had admitted, quote, fault for his role in the events of September 8, 2016, that admission did not extend to murder. The jury sided with the Crown, finding William Schneider guilty of second-degree murder. According to CBC, Amiko Kagawa attended every day of the trial. Through an interpreter, she said she wanted people to see her daughter Natsumi as a caring, positive person. She was always the core member of the family that bonded us together, Kagawa said. She was open to everybody, very curious. She always wanted to learn more and had big dreams. The mother and daughter frequently spoke with Natsumi, encouraging her mother to visit Vancouver, which she described as a beautiful city where, quote, wonderful people surrounded her. In their last conversation, Amiko said her daughter encouraged her to go to bed because it was late in the evening in Japan. Asked what she would like to say to her daughter today, Amiko said, watch us from heaven, end quote. A month later came William Schneider's sentencing hearing. Amiko Kagawa, Natsumi's mother, sent a victim impact statement. Global News reported on some of the content of her statement. And here it is. Sumi Kagawa's mother says her life has been a living hell and she's been struggling to move on since her daughter was murdered in 2016. 
The 30-year-old Japanese student was found stuffed in a suitcase and dumped in the hedges on a Vancouver property in the West End in September 2016. The accused, William Schneider, was last month found guilty of second-degree murder. In her written and translated statement read aloud by Crown, Kagawa's mother, Emily, says she's been having trouble sleeping and has lost her motivation to work since her daughter's death. Quote, I feel her pain that she went through when she died alone, writes Emily. I cannot believe that I have not received any apologies from Mr. Schneider and his family, she writes, adding the lack of an apology is unforgivable. On top of the life sentence, Crown has asked for four years to be served concurrently for the single count of indignity to a human body. Crown is also calling for a minimum of 17 years before Schneider is eligible for parole. Defense says parole eligibility should not go beyond the 10-year minimum. Schneider was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for 14 years. Uh, Willie Schneider appealed his conviction in February of 2021. A 2-1 decision by the B.C. Court of Appeal granted William Schneider's request that he be retried for the crime, agreeing that some of the evidence heard during the trial should not have been allowed, including Warren's hearsay evidence of what he'd overheard in Willie's phone conversation with his wife on the day of his arrest. As Warren was not directly party to the conversation, the defense said, his evidence of the overheard phone call should not have been allowed. The Crown appealed that verdict to the Supreme Court of Canada. In October of 2022, a decision came. Schneider's conviction was restored. The court said the B.C. judge had not erred by allowing as evidence the statements of Warren Schneider Jr. The Supreme Court ruled that what the brother overheard was relevant. The party admission exception is applicable in this case because it allows witness testimony about a confession even if the witness was not party to that conversation. Willie Schneider is going to stay right where he is, for now anyway. Hmm. This one makes me feel so empty. Yeah, it was... Um, it's just, it, it feels so senseless. Yeah, like talk about stealing somebody's life. Yeah. That's I, exactly what this guy did. I've been sort of struggling a bit trying to figure out what his actual motivation was. Because, like you say, she was a sweet person. And maybe she rejected him. But a rejection in a moment doesn't always lead to murder. Perhaps, and I, I might be stretching here, maybe Natsumi was a stand-in yeah, for his wife. I was thinking like, there's some anger building up. Because yep. he had just recently got back from Japan, trying to get his wife back. Yep. Here's another young Japanese woman. Mm -hmm. If he's rejected again, yep. right? Yeah. I kind of, uh, for Mrs. Uh, for Mrs. Kagawa, yeah. I almost want to apologize to her on behalf of on, Canada and Vancouver, yeah. right? Yeah. Just for something this horrible to happen to an overseas student. It's, um, you know, we didn't do it, but it brings a bit of shame, right? Yeah. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 255, The Murder of Natsumi Kagawa. That's right, it's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. What do you think, Matthew? Is it time to listen to some voicemails? I think we should. Okay, we've got four this week. Um, yeah. Um, apparently somebody called us from Egypt. 
Yeah. You said, and I don't see it. Like, it shows up as an international number if somebody calls internationally. Yeah. So I didn't see somebody from Egypt calling. So. Yeah, she was visiting Egypt. Oh. And and it didn't come through, and we've been searching. Oh, so maybe, find it. It, maybe she can message you, and if it's from, if she's visiting Egypt and she called from her own phone, which is a Canadian number or American number, I'll be able to find it. Carol, if you're listening, yeah, text me your number. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, here is our first voicemail. Hi, Mike and Matthew. This is Lisa Skyheart Marshall, who you thanked recently for giving you donut money. Thank you very much for taking time to have a look at my artwork. That was so sweet of you. <laughs> And thank you for your perceptive comments. I can tell you really looked at my work. I appreciate your podcast, especially the historical ones. You guys present these stories in such a sensitive way. P.S. If I ever do a painting of Bruce Lee, you'll be the first to know. But for now, I'll stick to the flowers, birds, and insects. Right. Bye. <laughs> thank you oh, so much. Thank you, Lisa. Oh, that's really sweet. Um, but yeah, I did. I loved her artwork. Uh, it, you, you know, sometimes people send stuff. You're like, oh, is this going to be? Like, I open it up. I'm like, wow, this stuff's great. Yeah. So here's another voicemail. Oh boy. Hey, gentlemen. This is uh, Taylor Cole. I've uh, been enjoying the podcast now about uh, 105 episodes, and I think, and. Um, just uh, want to tell you a little bit. Uh, I know Scott leaves at 149, so I don't know who takes over, but I hope they're just as good. Um, <clears throat> I yeah, so that's it. I uh, do long haul trucking, so I've been living at listening for about a month, and I'm about 100 and, like I said, 105, 104 episodes, and you can even remember what I'm all about now. Uh, so yeah, um, keep it up. I love it. Um, sometimes I have to take a break and go to something a bit funnier, just because it can get a bit down, but. Other than that, I love hearing about it. All right, have yourself a good one. You can uh, make up whatever you want for where I'm from. <laughs> well, I, I'm very, I'm very uh, probably uh, secure in the knowledge that he is Scottish. I was going to say he's from from the South Downs, just to take the piss, but he's obviously not. Thank you. I try to do a little bit of comic relief for for you. Yeah, <laughs> um, my grandmother was from Glasgow. Uh, my dad's mom. Uh, so she had a little hint of a Scottish accent still. My grandfather is from Ayr. Yeah, oh, really? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I want to visit Scotland. I want to visit the rest of the UK. I mean, I, I spent most of my time in London. Maybe made a little trip to Cambridge. You got to get up to somewhere like Inverness. It's beautiful. Up there. I want to go to Birmingham. Okay, that's not in Scotland. <laughs> no. <laughs> Just but, so you know. But I no, I know it's not in Scotland. <laughs> uh, anyway. But thank I, you yeah. for the call. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, next up, let's listen to this one. Oh. Hi, everyone. It's Kale again. That latest episode about Amanda Todd was beautiful, very important, but very very hard to listen to it's now wednesday and i started listening on on monday and i had to take a full break a full day break to to finish it up it's it's so hard to listen to someone go through so much pain and torment and have everyone around her abandon her 
Um, thank you so much for covering this story. Story. I know it was very hard to, to do, but yeah, I've also. I also had to think um, instead of your discretion. I think saying take care, like some other podcasts do, is a great way of putting it. Saying saying take care reminds us that yeah, you might be able to take the subject matter, and yeah, you're tough enough to listen to it, but you have to take care of yourself while listening. At the end of the day, you don't have to continually put yourself through it. You can you can take a break. You can listen to it later. Do what you need to do to make sure that you take care of yourself while listening. But thank you so much for covering it, and have a good day. Bye. Yeah, we'll take that under advisement. No, thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, when some days, guys, when Mike sends me the script, mm. I'm like, oh, dude, what are you doing to me? <laughs> yeah, right. Some, some of them, they're all, you know, some of them are particularly difficult to do. Yeah. That one, I mean, wasn't, that one wasn't easy. It, I mean, it's true crime, yeah. you know, and Amanda Todd's story is so compelling. I disagree that everybody abandoned her. I don't think her mom and dad and mm. her close family really, you know, yeah. abandoned her. Um, they did not, and they would argue that. So, uh, yeah, but I, I think what the caller was referring to were the people around her, i.e. her friends, yeah. her supposed friends. Supposed who, friends. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, let's move on. Hi, guys. Uh, my name is Penny from Madison, Wisconsin. And I just wanted to call and say that you guys are awesome. I've been listening for a very, very long time, ever since My Favorite Murder covered a couple of your stories, and I've binged through several times since then. Uh, I wanted to also uh, say that the Yumbyard is amazing, and even though I'm mostly just a lurker in there, the times that I've actually reached out in need of support, everyone has been super amazing and lovely, and just the community that's formed around you guys is a testament to how amazing you guys are and the way that you cover stories with such care and dignity. Um, I know that you don't tend to do stories that involve some really kind of traumatic murder and things like that, but I was wondering if you ever considered um, covering the case that the documentary Dear Zachary is about. I find it heartbreaking and terrible but also interesting to see how uh, the Canadian judicial system has changed because of it. Anyway, uh, go take a shit in your hat. Love you guys. Bye. <laughs> so dear dear Zachary, I just rewatched that documentary recently and it's about a case that uh, part of it takes place in Newfoundland. Okay. And uh, I don't want to get, I don't want to spoil it for people because people need to watch it, uh, or read the book. There's a book as well. Um, it's one of those cases that I don't know if I'm able to cover emotionally. Okay. It is so. What's, what's this show called? I'll give it a look. It's called Dear Zachary. Dear Zachary. Okay. Yeah. Um, if you can find it, if maybe you can find it laying around the internet somewhere. I don't know if it's on any streaming services right now, but it is one of those documentaries that once you watch it, 
you'll be like, oh my God, this is, this, it's one of the most horrendous stories that I think I've ever been told. And it's because it's told from the perspective of people who love the victims. Okay. So anyway. But thank you, Penny. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Now I'm just, I'm thinking about that story again. I'm glad I don't know it. I'm looking at you. You're like, you're like, ugh. I have introduced that documentary to a couple of people and uh, I, I actually have one friend was angry <laughs> at me for doing it. Wow. Because it's so. Heart-wrenching. Devastating. Right. Devastating. So if you want to feel devastated. <laughs> there you go. Watching a, a true crime documentary. Suckers for punishment. Yeah, that's the one. Anyway. And there's also another good one called What Happened to Aunt Diane? It's about this woman who, uh, she ends up going the wrong way down a highway and crashes and kills uh, a bunch of kids. Right. You know, in a car. Okay. And that is another one of those ones where it's just like, oh my God, I can't, I can't. I, I had to stop wow. and go for a walk after watching these documentaries because, oi, oi, oi. Anyway, that's it for voicemails. I rambled a lot, but anyway. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or 1-877-D-A-R-K-P-T-N. We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. On to Patreon and Donut Money Donors, and we have uh, one patron and one Donut Money Donor this week. Um, this week, we have a friend from the Yumber Yard as a patron. Yumber Yard. It's Ale- Alexandra Orozco. Orozco. It's Alexandra Orozco, a.k.a. Alligator from Artesia, California. Excellent. Alligator. <laughs> I thought that was funny. <laughs> that is funny. I wish I had a name that was cool enough to have like a a nickname like that, Alligator. Mike. Like people used to call me Michael Michael Motorcycle, but. Mikey Browner. Or Brownie. I got Brownie a Brownie. lot. And also I had uh, really buck teeth when I was a little kid, so I got Beaver Cleaver and woodchuck and stuff like that hmm. until I punch somebody out. Oh, <laughs> it's not the answer, Mike. Well, it's not the answer, but it was my answer at the time. <laughs> anyway, yeah. <sighs> Alligator is a friend of Banoffee Pie. Yes, and, yes. And Babs, her mother, Barbara, I call her mom. Okay. You don't know this Banoffee Pie, but I call your mom Babs, Barbara. <laughs> <laughs> Babs. Babs. It, yeah. Anyway, what does Alligator do there in Artesia, California? She's a sort of lady of leisure. Well, there you go. Yeah, she likes to. I want to be a lady of leisure. I'm. I'm. I am not a lady of leisure. <laughs> I want to be a lady of leisure. Yeah, but she does it, and she does it with style. There you go. Yeah. Uh, so that's it for patrons. And as far as donut money goes, we have Jody Gardner, and Jody says, "Love the show. So many." Great Canadian stories. Great. I, I don't know where Jody's from, though. So maybe somewhere in Canada? She's maybe? from Garden City. Iowa? No. Okay, where's Garden City? Somewhere in Canada. Garden City, somewhere in Canada. Yes, that's where she's from. And what does she do? For, let me see if there's a theme here. 
What does she do for a living? She wrote. Oh, I thought you were going to say she's a gardener. A book. <laughs> okay. That is considered the classic of all reference books for the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so I knew it had to be something like. It's true. I I I used to have um this little. It was a children's encyclopedia set growing up. Okay. And they had the seven wonders of the world in, okay. on one of the in one of the articles. And I remember looking at the the artist's renderings of the hanging gardens. The hanging gardens and the Colossus of Rhodes and like And you wanted to see them, didn't you? I wanted to see those things so badly. You did a lot of reading when you were a kid, didn't you? I I lost myself in reading when yeah. I was a little kid. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you still read a lot. I do. <laughs> it's very clear that I do. Yeah, I'm, sorry. I looked I looked over his shoulder at it, the bookshelves when I said that. But yeah, you, you love to read. You have so many books. You love reading. January just ended. Yeah. Uh, as we're recording. January is just ended. I read 10 books in January. I read none. <laughs> you read none books? I read none books unless you count a illustrated book. Well, there you go. So thank you so much. Thanks, Jody. Jody and, and sorry for Alligator. Like, sorry for doing it all about your last name, Jody. You've probably gotten that all your life. Yeah, probably. Who knows, though? Maybe she loves it. Maybe she does. Yeah. Thanks to all our patrons and Donut Money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. And that is it for this episode of Dark Poutine. So until next week, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Love you, folks. Her name is Elsbeth. Elsbeth Tassioni. You know her as the offbeat but brilliant defense attorney from The Good Wife and The Good Fight. You've been a very busy little bee. Buzz, buzz. Now she's in New York with the NYPD. This is very different. Better. But still using her unconventional ways to find the truth. You're trying to sniff me, Miss Tassioni? <laughs> Elsbeth, new series Thursdays on Global. Stream on Stack TV.